everyone and welcome to our Gem Pursuit. I'm your host, Matthew Weldon. And as always, I'm joined by my co-host, Elise Ketcher. Hello, Elise. Good morning, afternoon and good night to everyone. This week, we are talking about a secret language. Elise, what are we going to cover this week? We are going to the roots of this one in the ancient Ottoman Empire with the language of flowers, which eventually turns into the Victorian flower language. We'll be talking about how they used it as a form of communication, how it evolves into jewellery, and lastly, what to look for if you're trying to purchase a piece of this history. You've sown a few very interesting seeds. Can't wait to get started. So Elise, when we were talking about the secret language of flowers, I suppose last week our episode was slightly more niche. There was, wasn't as much material out there. But one thing I noticed this week, uh, looking into the origins of why flowers mean different things and where the, the different meanings can be attributed, there was definitely a lot of material out there, wasn't there? Yes. I mean, in, in terms of, we have to remember as well that we're actually going to be discussing what the Victorians used as their specific language. So that's like bringing it down to a very, a, a certain people from a certain time period um, living in certain conditions. So, um, and of course the bells are ringing in the background, right, so it right sounds very Victorian as well. But um, it's important that we remember that the email, the email buzzer is not Victorian, though. <laughs> it's important that we also remember that this is so small from that particular period, you know, from this particular people, because there are many other languages that use flowers as emblematic symbols and um, also for different cultures they mean different things so we just want to you know reiterate that what we're going to be talking about today is specifically how the Victorians used the flower language yeah um, and and where it originated from so um, in terms of where it originated from was actually something that they had witnessed in other cultures Yes, and I think, as you said, it does pervade many, many cultures, but I think we'd have to, we could probably do an entire series of flower language or secret flower language if we were to do ones on different uh, cultures. But yes, Victorian flower jewelry. So talking about the origins of it then, what were kind of the, the kernels of the growth of this secret language for the Victorians? The natural world, as we've seen through many of the um, the previous episodes that we've done, the natural world is a source of inspiration to humanity, specifically when we don't have, you know, a lot of scientific knowledge to go by. We go by what we see in nature. We know that in the Japanese and other Asian cultures that they did have or develop a meaning with flowers and other kind of um, botanicals. Uh, that were well, well, well before the Victorian period. And we also know that the Bible uses allegories to kind of teach us a lot about the doctrines that are inside the Bible so that people can understand them from all different walks of life instead of just, you know, the highly educated. They really break down doctrinal truths 
by using allegories, a lot of them with flowers and other kind of, you know, trees and things like that, the root and, you know, obviously because a tree can needs all the same thing that a human body yeah, the needs. the grasshopper and the ant from Aesop's Fable with the grain that grew. So absolutely, not so, quite a flower, but a grain, but, you know, similar point, yeah. Exactly. So all of these things were used a lot long before the Victorian period, but it really was like the kind of Western idea of the flower language kind of took hold and was inspired by the ancient or the Ottoman Turkish Empire um, when they had their specific language, which was the Selam or Selam, which is their kind of, you know, (laughs) I can't, I can't help you with that one. (laughs) Which is the kind of um, tradition that they used where they communicated through flowers and other objects So this is where we get the origin of the Victorian flower language from. So we've got the, yeah, so you've got the Ottoman Empire and the Salam language. Obviously, you know, today, you know, Turkey is very accessible if you're in the West, in the UK or or in in any of the European countries. But, But back then, it obviously would have been quite a journey. It would have been quite exotic and quite difficult to travel that far, you know, so... The key event, I suppose, of getting that language back from the Ottoman Empire to Victorian England, how did that happen? So, as you said, you know, the form of transportation to these exotic places was minimal. But we do have, you know, at this time, a lot of trade taking place, very much so through Turkey, which was considered the gateway to Asia. And... um, So during that time, we had placed um, someone from the British or the British ambassador was based in Turkey and his wife, Lady Mary Wortley Montague or Montague, she was also placed there with her husband and she was enamored with this, um, you know, this custom that the Turkish had at the time which was this Selam language. Now, back then, what it actually was, was it was decoded messages that were actually based on words that rhymed with the objects. So it was a little bit different to what it actually develops into in the Victorian um, times, because obviously, you know, we don't have the same language, the Turkish language. So what would have rhymed with their kind of objects or flowers would have been completely different to us. But some of them translate through later, but just as an own secret secret language from us. Yes. So she then starts to write together all of these things that she's witnessing. Um, and this is known as well, the compilation of all of her letters and her writings and journals is made into a book around 1763 is called The Letters of Lady Mary Wortley Montague. And it's later published a lot later um, after she's passed away. And this kind of becomes the basis of what happens in the Victorian times as the flower dictionaries, which there are many of, and they go out and people usually have them right next to their Bible 
and this is how popular they become. And they usually use it from then on to communicate messages to each other. It's amazing how people communicate. You know, I'm just thinking of, you know, they had their, their, their item that they had that they used to communicate was a small book. You know, whereas today I think that would be replaced by your phone on the side of your yeah. bedside cabinet. But she wrote these letters, as you said, about 1717 and they are later published. She obviously didn't use the language exactly as the was used in Turkey, but actually it doesn't it doesn't really matter if she mischaracterized this salam language. The important thing is that she made flowers interesting attractive and the public really wanted to use it following this so as you said this really is the most important kind of event bringing it to victorian england and by between 1827 and 1923 which is a bit later that developed into over 98 separate texts that explained flower language yeah it's it's incredible to think i mean even now regardless of whether you are a male or female, anything that has to do with kind of like a secret language between, you know, even between siblings. When I was a kid, you know, me and my sisters would, I'm sure you've used pig Latin before, or there's other things like P language that are used that you use between family members um, or even your native language to kind of communicate without other people knowing and um, I I've, think I've it's, no idea what the first two are. You don't, you've never heard of Pig Latin? Never heard of. I oh, sorry, maybe heard of Pig Latin, but I don't. Do you want to give us a rendition of it there? Well, I can do. I can do P language really fast. So basically, like P language is it's like you, back slang. No, you like add P's into what you're saying so that nobody can understand what you're saying. So, for instance, if I say um, "Hello, Ross, how are you?" it would be "Hapel, hapo, rapos, hapow, apow, yipu." So like if you said it really fast, you get really used to doing it. But if you say it really fast, like nobody else around you actually knows what you're saying, but it's like very easy. Except for the, per- but I mean. La pai capella poo, poo you poo, mampathy poo, wapadapai you poo, to poo peem, All I can hear, well, you Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like you can't hear what I'm saying, but if you speak P language or like you understand P language, you can, it's like, it's exactly the same thing. It's just that in Victorian times, you have to be, there's so, there's so many things that can ruin you in Victorian times, yeah. right? So like, I'm a woman, I'm walking down the street, I'm unchaperoned. That could ruin me. Hmm. That could ruin my I reputation. Su- I suppose, and it's important to think of the origins, when we think of the origins of Victorian flower language is you have to take into context the social environment that it's in as well yeah so you can't just say exactly what you think all no. the time so there's a especially when it comes to courtship so the flowers had a very practical reason as well but it wasn't also just the flowers it was also the manner in which they were presented you know if you handed them to someone upside down it was a sign of you know it could have been a sign of rejection if you gave flowers to someone and then on receiving it, they kind of pointed them down again, a similar one, but uh, that again meant that they weren't interested. If they held them up and close to their heart, that was a good sign. So you had to obviously couple the the way that... With the, the gesture. Peach, with the gesture, with the with the actual flowers. So the specific flowers in these bouquets of these tusi were uh, were very, very important and all had a symbolic meaning. 
um, which obviously later then developed into the pieces of jewellery. Yes. And also we have to remember with flowers as well, one of the major things that happened in the Victorian period was in fact the marriage of Queen Victoria herself. And her particular marriage actually set in motion quite a few traditions that we today still do. One in particular is the fact that she wore a white wedding gown, which had never before been worn. And now white is the specific color used in Western countries to celebrate the bride. Whereas previously it would have been a number of other colors, including blue. So white was something that was, as a wedding dress, was created by Queen Victoria. Is that where the phrase something blue came from, I wonder? Blue, the color blue in particular and sapphire, the stone, represent marital bliss. So that's that's all in our other episode, the Victorian era, which you can find in our other episodes. But in particular, the two things that I want to talk about in terms of marriage ceremonies and flowers that happened in the Victorian period is number one, the scattering of rose petals down the aisle as the bride approaches the groom. And this particular um, gesture is actually, again, something that was done for Queen Victoria. And it is meant to mean wishes of love and happiness as the, comp- as the two like enter their new life together. So again, that's a meaning that not a lot of people know. They're just like, oh yeah, it's beautiful. We'll have like the flower girls that throw rose petals on the, uh, you know, on the way to the, on the aisle, on the way to the, mm. the top but of the aisle a, to the there's room. a longstanding reason why it's... Yeah. Exactly. Mm. Number two, the royal bouquet or the bouquet that we all brides all wear or carry, I should say, not wear. And... In the Victorian times, well, in specific, Queen Victoria's bouquet had specific flowers that were used as emblems, symblematic of her up and coming nuptials with her husband. One in particular was the orange blossom, which she decided to wear also in her hair instead of a tiara, which was, again, something that was considered you know, very against the grain, Mm. let's say. Well, obviously she had access to a lot of tiaras, but for her coronation and, you know, all royal engagements, she did obviously wear these tiaras and things, but uh, for a particular ceremony, yes, it was orange blossom. Exactly. And the orange blossom is funny because it actually represents fertility. So for a bride to be wearing that would be very apt, especially the future of the royal bloodline to be wearing that at her wedding because that would be one of the most important things that she would have to perform, which would be to become a mother of the future king or queen. One other thing that she did also have in her particular bouquet was myrtle. Now, the sprig of myrtle that she had, which again is supposed to represent a happy life together, she took that back to her Isle of Wight home and she planted it there and it's apparently still there, like the offshoots of that particular myrtle bush. Now from her 
and all of her descendants and royal descendants up until this day, even right up to Meghan, Kate Middleton, uh, Zara, Tyndall, all of them had a sprig taken from that home and put into their bouquets. So that has been Princess Diana's. All of the bouquets have featured myrtle since Queen Victoria and in specifically from her particular patch that the first So since about 1850, every royal bouquet has had a sprig of this myrtle in it, which is quite an incredible tradition, actually. So, um, And then, of course, it invo- evolves into something much, much more. With all of the ritual surrounding flowers and the different meanings that each one would have, I suppose it was only really a small step for these flowers and these symbols to translate into jewellery. When did we start to really see the Victorian flower jewellery kind of evolve? I was doing a lot of research on the kind of etiquette that would lend itself well to this kind of secret language because, you know, there has to be a social reasoning behind why a secret language has to be used. And in particular, in the in the Victorian period, you know, where there is some kinds of liberation, um, we, you know, in terms of a, a middle class finally, you know, emerging instead of just having, you know, very, very wealthy and very, very poor. We have this middle class emerging. We still have very, very strict protocols in terms of social etiquette, um, class system and the way in which men and women in particular are allowed to communicate in society. So this it really is the perfect time for this kind of language to emerge one thing that I was reading actually was a little quote from Mark Twain's diaries which was specifically from this time and he says good breeding consists of concealing how much we think of ourselves and how little we think of the other person and so I thought that that was quite quite important for the time period because I mean today if you think about Twitter and you think about Instagram and you think about all of the opinions and the freedom of speech and I'm allowed to say what I think this is a time period where you're not supposed to be saying how much you think of yourself or even sharing your opinions on somebody else freely so it's it's in terms of trying to communicate anything that you feel a language like this however subtle gives you some form of release. I think it gives you an outlet. Yes. Yes. Exactly. But then in terms of the jewellery that they, they made then, there was, there's a couple of things that I noticed is that not only the symbols of the flowers, but the different materials that they use was quite important. Coral was often was a great one because obviously its colour and its texture was perfect for carving into clusters of flowers and leaves. They were also developing different colours of gold at this time. So you could often use rose-colored gold to represent, you know, the barks, and then you could have green-colored gold to represent the leaves, uh, and obviously yellow gold if there was yellow flowers. Tortoise shell was often carved, and that would resemble uh, branches and twigs. 
and seed pearls were perfect to represent petals, or they often re represented uh, grapes in terms of grapevines, which was kind of a popular Mediterranean motif at the time as well. So although not specifically Victorian English was from a similar time, and funny, even like today, the jewellers then, the designers between like, you know, Paris, London, and the different European capitals, Italy, kind of Venice and uh, Florence, they actually all were quite related. So you will see similar motifs emerging for, through different uh, regions of Europe. Also, you know, with the craftsmanship that you're talking about, that lends itself so well to what is actually happening during the period. So Queen Victoria, the early, the early Queen Victorian period is known as the Romantic period. So it's a time of courtship. It's a time of romance. Flowers lead straight into that. So the type of jewellery that we tend to find during this early Victorian period are things like the Petrodura, which is the, it's like carved or polished hardstone inlays, which make up different, made of different hardstones and different colours, which represent different flowers. And they can be seen in brooches, earrings, necklaces and rings. The forget-me-not flowers are a huge motif that are used during the Victorian period. And usually the way that you can tell that it's a forget-me-not is it's usually paired either with turquoise, um, the actual gemstone, or it is paired with enamel that is that forget-me-not colour, that very um, stark blue, turquoise blue. Um, which of course, forget-me-nots represent remembrance, usually for lovers. So for people who are longing to see each other or are going to be away from each other for long periods of time, which in the Victorian period happens quite a lot. Well, there was a big, there was a lot of naval activity, wasn't there? So, and it ties in quite well to our previous episode about symbols of the sea, the, the forget-me-nots and the flower language surrounding that uh, has some similar connotations of the, you know, the symbols of the sea, you know, your anchors and, and different motifs like that. Yes. Um, another, another um, very highly widely used motif during this period is also the ivy leaf, which is etched into repeating patterns, usually on wedding bands or anything wedding related because ivy represented fidelity so again, taking it straight from the marriage vows is something that you remember. And I think that's one that if you're looking at Victorian jewelry, you will see this. Yes. A lot. Ivy is definitely one that you will see uh, quite a bit because it, it lends itself to jewelry. It's a natural evolution because it kind of can crawl up the side and the shoulders of a, of a piece of jewelry fairly seamlessly. I think the other one, orange blossom pattern, that motif in jewelry, and in fact, there was uh, there's an American jewelers called Orange Blossom. They were more, they're slightly later. They're kind of late Victorian into Edwardian and Art Deco, but obviously inspired from originally Queen Victoria's headpiece. And actually, we had an Orange Blossom ring, and I know the person who got it is listening to this podcast. So uh, probably about two, two and a half, three years ago, maybe that one sold. But beautiful Art Deco ring with that Orange Blossom pattern carved into the shoulders that led up to the the gallery of the ring yes also the wheat staff is one that we see quite a lot seen a may 
using tiaras as well during the Victorian period and even later on into the Edwardian period with wheat staffs. You'll see them curled around the edges of lockets. You'll see wheat staffs on cuffs in gold work. It's kind of a more at the language around wheat staffs would be interesting. It's more to do with um, industry and uh, bounty bounty and stability and planning, I think, as well. Actually. Yes, but it also represents in the flower language fertility and resurrection with a little, you know, to the Bible, yeah. <laughs> a little nod to the Bible, you know. So, um, and, and funny, but every every flower and every kind of plant has a meaning. Uh, it does. I, I've got a whole massive list here. Shall I go through really quick what they all are? Well, if you... I'll go so if your list is as long as this, the one I'm looking at, uh, we might be no, here a I've, while. I've, ta- I've taken all of the things that I think people might be know what the flowers are. Yeah, so I've taken, I've taken what I've been able to pull out for people to kind of take for themselves. Perfect. Okay. Yeah, let's go. Yeah. So we've got apple blossom, which means preference. We have aster, which is the symbol of love and daintiness. Basil, the herb, which means good wishes. Bittersweet, which means truth. I think that's quite apt. Black-eyed Susan. And I love this one. So this particular flower, and we've all seen it. Like I was like, what's a black-eyed Susan? And I looked it up on Google. It's actually like uh, the center of it is like a brownish color. And then it's got really thin yellow petals that go all the way around it. And they're just, they look, they're a bit like a, a weed that you see in your grandma's garden all the time. But if you receive a black-eyed Susan, it's justice. <laughs> so Matthew, might you if you receive a black-eyed Susan from from me, just so you know, it'll mean justice. A blue. I've, ne- I've never got a bunch of flowers off. It, but, uh... <laughs> a bluebell means humility. Borage means bluntness and directness. Chamomile is patience in adversity. Chives is usefulness. The humble daffodil is regard or unequaled love, which I mean, that'd be really hard to read into. You know, if you received a daffodil, do, do they regard me or do they have unequaled love for me? How, how would you know? A dahlia is good taste. A daisy, which we'll talk about later because we've got a, a somebody, a listener is wanting to know about daisy so we'll go into that edelweiss which means courage or devotion which is very important as well because edelweiss is a is the austrian flower and i'm sure if anybody listens or not listens anybody watched sound of music how many times i used to watch it when i was a kid because my grandmother made me um edelweiss is a a very important Austrian flower and it's very hard to come by. It's only actually found in the very, very high mountainous areas of Austria. So in order to get an Edelweiss, you would have to climb to the very peaks of the Austrian Alps to get one. So that's important. Courage and devotion is what Edelweiss represents, which I think is again, really important. Fennel, which is flattery. Fern, which is magic, fascination, or secret bonds of Very love. Very common in Irish jewellery, uh, a fern, because yeah. it's uh, a 
very prevalent um, flower that you find, well, plant that you find in the kind of the mountains around Wicklow, Wexford. Um, there's even a place called Ferns, actually. Yeah, our, our bog oak earrings are basically a fern motif. Yeah. And I think it's sweet because a lot of people during the Victorian period were also named after these flowers. So that's important to mention as well. Fern is a very... Uh, is a very Victorian name. Oh yeah, but but I said loads of names like rose. Yes, violet, daisy, yeah. um, gardenia, your lovely, or secret love. Geranium means folly or stupidity. <laughs> Honeysuckle is bonds of love. Hydrangea is gratitude for being understood, or could be frigidity and heartlessness. So again, I have to be very careful on the meaning that <laughs> you take of it. Yes, but, like, but this, like, is, what, this but is what's so cool about it is you could be cutting somebody and they don't know as well. So it's like but this is of just like, like <laughs> this is just like subtle message that you might text to someone when there's like an ambiguity to it. There is the while the flowers, as we said, there was ninety eight texts on this, so there was obviously going to be some contradictions somewhere in there. Yeah. So yeah, lavender. So. I'm, I'm going to go through quickly. I know Ross is like looking at me going, no, no, we, we've got little time. I really want to get through these because this is the, the whole language. So we've got lavender, which means distrust. Lilac, which is a joy of youth. Marigold, which means grief or jealousy. Myrtle, which is good luck or love in marriage, which again, we talked about. It's always in the royal bouquets. Not two of those go hand in hand. Oak. Like- which means strength, oregano or oregano, if they say it in America, is substance, pansy, which means thoughts, peony, which is bashful, happy life or shame. <laughs> okay, again, double-edged sword there. Poppy, which means consolation or, or you know, consoling someone. Dwarf sunflowers, which means adoration or tall sunflowers which mean haughtiness so you know be careful which one you choose the sweet pea which means blissful pleasure goodbye or thank you for a lovely time sweet william which means gallantry tansy which means hostile thoughts declaring war so again matthew if a tansy comes your way be careful bear that in mind Violet, which means watchfulness, modesty, faithfulness. The willow, which means sadness. And yarrow, which means everlasting love. And I think there's one very important one that we can't forget, which is a shamrock, which means good luck. Okay, so Matthew, specific stories this one's a hard one because again, we're talking about a language that's quite secret. So if you're giving a piece of jewelry like this, it usually means that you want it to be a message between the two of you and not something that's shared with the world. So like it was difficult to find one. I was able to find a really good one, but what is your specific story for this particular so flower I, period. As you said, there's always a sense of mystery to these um, flower motifs. And again, there is 
different texts and there's different dictionaries, literal, literal dictionaries that explain yes. what each flower means. But the one that I have gone with is an early piece of jewellery. And the reason why I think it's so interesting and relevant is that the people, when they, when they found this particular piece of jewellery, they knew that it had a meaning behind it, but they haven't been able to attribute what the meaning is, primarily because the there's parts of this brooch that are it's a brooch there you go that that are missing, but also because of the time period that it came from. So it's quite early, but it is a, a flower brooch, and the reason why I think it's so cool is that you can actually go and see it in the V&A Museum. They have an incredible collection of jewelry actually there, so it would always be well worth worth a visit. But we were talking about Victorian flower jewelry. I just want to talk about one that is a slight precursor to it. And the reason I want to talk about it is because, obviously, as we said, the origins of these meanings, they can go right back to even Roman times, as I think we mentioned about the oak tree was a revered then. But it's about a brooch that was found in Brigstock in the UK in 2017. Uh, and it was found on the site uh, known as the Great Park, which was a hunting, a big hunting area in medieval times. So, this particular brooch was found by a, a metal detectorist. It's something that we've come across in the shop a couple of times, that people who found items when they've been metal detecting, and they've said, oh, you know, I found this, what do you think of it? And uh, it- I, When I worked in London, I used to have, like, metal detector enthusiasts coming to me on the weekly basis with things that they had found. And it is a huge, huge movement people love it it's like they're they're hobbyists but i'd say that they're a little bit more than that like they take they grid out land and they take they go to farms and they make deals with the farmers you know if we find something on your land and they grid it out and they spend weekends doing it and they love it and they find some amazing things yeah but i think i think it's like golf or fishing in that if you hit a great golf shot or if you catch a great fish at the start, you spend the rest of your life trying to replicate it, right? <laughs> and this is, I think with metal detectorists, I'm imagining, I've never done it, but I imagine if you find something cool near the start of when you're metal detectoring, if that's not the verb, like then you're like, oh, this is great. Like, I just have to try and do that again. So anyway, this this is what, this particular person metal detecting in the Great Park, big hunting ground, right? Like, you don't really have these big hunting grounds anymore, you know, in terms of the fragmentation of the natural landscapes and so on. So, anyway, this, they found this brooch. Now, if you find a brooch that is over 300 years old, it falls into what is called the National Treasures Act. This is in the UK. And in Ireland, I'm pretty sure there's something very similar, which means that you actually have to offer it to the state, basically, to to buy it at a fair market price. So, because we've got a few people who found stuff and said, oh, would you like to buy this? You actually can't offer it for sale. You have to offer it to the state. I've dealt and- with this Treasure Act many, many times in my in my time in the industry. And I think it's fantastic. I really do think it's fantastic because history is something that should not just be preserved for the individual history is something that we all should have access to. And if it's something of huge historical importance, then we do want it to be available to everybody to see it. And that's the same with us. If we have something that we know 
is museum worthy, which we've had before, we do offer it to the museums before it becomes something that we sell sell to the public for private collections. Um, And that to us is really important. And so I always refer people back to the Treasure Act if they find something. And to be honest, the metal detectionists, the enthusiasts out there, they all know about this act. They know very, very well that the things that they find will be going there first. And they usually get tied up for about six months before they're back released to them. I think they do. And it's very fair. And I just like to say on on that, I do recall in the UK, there was a famous case of someone who found something and they tried to go around the metal detection. They they, they didn't declare it. uh, And it ended up that they, it got confiscated for them. And if they had only gone through the treasures act, they would have got a very good price for it. But anyway, back to this flower brooch that they found it was likely from a wealthy owner it has a very sculptural design set with fine gold enamel diamonds which from circa 14 to 1450 very interesting old diamonds uh spinels and pearls now it was white enamel with uh set with the there was a diamond center white enamel around it and then there was a large garnet in the middle now, what's interesting is that it was probably made in Germany or France and then obviously sold into the UK, uh, which is where, where it was found. But this definitely would have been in the higher echelons of society. Now, the person who took it into the museum said, jewellery often has an in- inventiveness, an emotional clarity, uh, character and longevity. And no doubt this had a story to tell. And if you look at this, it is quite different visually to Victorian jewelry, but I've no doubt that the meaning behind this particular flower brooch, which will be difficult to ascertain due to the damage. I mean, let's not forget it's 600 years old. It's an amazing condition considering that, but it just shows you that even back then, uh, the flower jewelry communicated something far beyond just obviously the motif. Uh, And if you want to see it today, it's on display in the William and Judith Bollinger Jewelry Gallery in the in the V&A Museum. Other things that are on display there, Queen Victoria's diamond and sapphire coronet designed by Prince Albert. And we actually also have a coronet. If you look at our website, courtville.ie, a coronet is a full circle, like a tiara, but it's a full circle. And also Beyonce's Papillon ring by Glenn Spiro, uh, which was a gift to her by her husband, Jay-Z. Fabulous. Very interesting. And now, what story have you got for us this week um, on these flowers and their motifs? Well, I'm sure our listeners are aware of my fascination with tiaras. And I couldn't leave you all hanging this week without bringing you a tiara specifically from the Victorian period and also donning flowers with specific meaning. And when Elise says she has a fascination with tiaras, that is not an understatement. Anyway, so... She's wearing one now. No, I'm not. It is an understatement. Oh, yeah. Oh, no. Elise loves tiaras. So let me just... Just so we're clear. But I just just want to say in terms of tiara, I just wanted to bring something that was quite important to the because it's so hard like I said at the beginning of this it's so hard to find something that is actually 
supposed to be between two people. So a lot of the time there's going to be beautiful pieces of jewelry out there that the meanings are reserved for family members or they're reserved for the two people involved. And we don't have those stories. So if you have a story like that, please share it with us. We'd be happy to tell people over the podcast. And if you want it to be shared publicly, do tell us. And you can do that through our uh, DM on our Instagram, or you can do it through uh, our email, which is uh, experts at courtfield.ie. But my tiara today, it dons from the Victorian period. However, it was something that was given as a gift in the 1920s. Now it was created in the Victorian period and how it eventually, like who created it, where it came from, who it was originally for when it was created in uh, the 19th century, late 19th century is a mystery, but it was given in 1923 to Elizabeth Bowles Lyon who got married on the 26th of April to the then Prince Albert, Duke of York, who later became the King of England when his brother very famously decided to bow out. Uh, King Abdicate. Edward. Abdicate, that's correct. So um, Elizabeth Bowles Lyon in 1923 had no idea that her um her future would include her being the queen consort to the king. Uh, She was just marrying a duke and she was from a very wealthy aristocratic family herself. Her father was in fact the Earl of Strathmore. Is she related to Camilla Parkerbowles? I would say that there is a connection. Connection, Yes, I would say that there is a connection as there always is with these aristocratic families. But her father was the 14th Earl of Strathmore and he gifted to her upon her wedding in 1923 the tiara that he acquired specifically for the occasion, which ended up being known as the Strathmore Rose Tiara. The look of it is basically five rosettes, which go across the brow or a little bit higher because you can wear it in two ways. But the very famous photograph is um, of the Queen Mother wearing it in the 1920s modern style, which is kind of across the brow. Um, But it can be worn higher as well. All of the rosettes actually are studded with rose cut diamonds, which are specific to the Victorian period for tiaras. They would have later in the Edwardian period been actually taken out and recut into the old mine or old European cut. So this is a really beautiful example of a piece of Victorian jewellery that hasn't been touched. Also, um, the Strathmore Rose tiara was used to represent love. So red roses, even today, we know when Valentine's Day comes around, red roses are the rose that or the chosen flower that gets sold out every year because roses are connected so deeply with affectionate love. And so her father gifted her this specific tiara in hopes that her marriage would be filled with love. And this particular tiara is still in the Royal Collection. 
for some reason, it has never, ever been worn by anyone else in the, in the family. Now, I don't know if that's because there's such a deep sentiment connected to the tiara. Um, each of the rosettes also come away and can be worn as brooches. And as we all know, the queen is a huge fan of wearing brooches, but she doesn't wear this particular tiaras in, in a brooch form. So I think it does have huge sentimental meaning. The queen mother's the only one who's ever worn it. And it was thought that, um, that Kate Middleton might have worn this particular tiara for her wedding. So it was like highly publicized. It was one of the tiaras that they thought would emerge, but it still hasn't emerged. And it's still sitting in a vault somewhere waiting for me to try it on. We always love to hear from our listeners and we have a couple of interesting stories that we've got, Elise. Yes, we have two listeners um, that have asked us questions about two specific flowers. Now, this is the reason why I didn't mention these previously when we were talking about like the, la- the language because one of them is actually a motif that is used probably more than any other flower in jewelry. And that of course is the daisy. And it was Bronwyn Barrett at Bronwyn Barrett who asked us about the meaning behind daisies. So Matthew. Well, thank you Bronwyn for sending it in. First of all, really appreciate it. So daisies, I mean, they're, as you said, at least they're a motif that you will see in jewellery and Daisy is a name that you will come across. Um, so obviously a very important one. The simplest uh, explanation for daisies, and really when you look at their colour, white is obviously uh, an important part of it. So it's not just the particular flower, it's also the colours that go with it. As you mentioned, red roses um, have a different meaning to... To yellow roses. To yellow roses. So... Um, but daisies, they represent innocence, love, loyalty, fidelity, uh, and simplicity. Um, they're mentioned in Shakespeare's Hamlet quite a lot, and, and they represent uh, simplicity and innocence in that. So the daisy motif, I think it's one we'll all be familiar with. The other thing that daisies can represent is beauty, but unknown to the possessor. So if you can... Someone who wear a daisy, you can you can present someone with daisies to represent beauty, uh, but it might be unbeknownst that that is the meaning that so when you give it. Basically, the One Direction song. You don't know you're beautiful. Oh yeah, how did I not know that? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, so that's yes. Thank you, Bronwyn, um, for highlighting that because that is a really repetitive emblem that we see in the Victorian period. Um, the second one is from Avery Joe 26, which is about the exotic and wonderful hibiscus flower. Now hibiscus flowers do always like bring thoughts of the exotic tropical paradise theme into mind. Victorian period, the hibiscus flower actually represented delicate beauty and it would have been given between youthful 
lovers or people who were courting each other. Of course, finding a hibiscus flower would have been quite a challenge um, and to receive one would have been extremely special. And because we don't have a lot of this particular flower here, there aren't a lot of studies of it, um, examples in jewellery. So it's not something that we see a lot in Victorian jewellery, but when we do see them, they are usually bright, beautiful and extremely colourful. Okay, moving on to our collector's tips. It's a big area, uh, Victorian flower jewellery, lots of different things to look at and to consider. But if there was one thing you would say to people, Elise, uh, as an expert in Victorian jewellery, if they were looking at flower jewellery or thinking of maybe getting a piece, what, what would that be? My number one tip would be to remember colour. So as you said before, red roses mean something specific. Yellow roses mean something specific. White flowers usually are connected with things like purity, innocence, beauty, but also death. So it's like really important to remember color when it comes to Victorian flower language. Uh, For instance, a daisy on a black background with white pearls would actually represent mourning jewelry. So it would, you know, represent probably for a a child though, because of the represent death with a black background, background, with a black background and a white flower would usually represent memory or death. And that's something we may be talking about in one of our future episodes. It is. Yeah. And like I said before, with, um, forget me nots, the the turquoise color, or the like the periwinkle blue color that that re- represents, you know, remembering, remember me, those kinds of things, those kind of sentiments, um, and color red in particular usually has passion, affection, and sometimes anger attached to it. So depending on the flower, so it's remembering that color is really important. When it comes to um, when it comes to the Victorian flower language as well, what was your tip, Matthew? Oh, I was just thinking what your favorite flower would be. Actually, just a just a good one to bear on. At file. this time, probably the um, the black eyed Susan. Yeah, note made, black eyed Susan. Okay, um, so my tip. So when I when I think about collectors' tips, generally, I always think about the thing that if if I saw a piece of jewelry what would make me get excited about it? What would make me kind of look and go, oh, that's actually quite interesting. That's quite special. And that's the thing that as a, as a, like as a jewelry dealer, those little details, I think they're the important things that I'd love to try and share with you that kind of, if you see it, you might think, yes, that is something good. That's something to look at. And I think with, and it's only something simple, like jewelry is really, especially antique jewelry, it's quite simple. There's, things to look out for and one of them is condition and specific to flower jewelry a lot of it can be enameled right and it's dead simple but it's a it's a very tough one uh, to actually find so a lot of this jewelry can be uh, enameled flowers and if that enamel is perfect 
even if it's a small piece, even if it's a plain color enamel. Now, obviously, you can have different enamel techniques that can have, you know, pink going through white and like lots of different patterns. But if you find a piece of Victorian jewelry, if you can identify it as such, that the enamel is in perfect condition, that's going to be an important piece because fine enamel jewelry is actually quite rare because over the course of 130, 140 years, that enamel can tend to get chipped and damaged. Some people use nail polish to try and repair it. Uh, don't do that. Uh, that would not be good. But if you find an old piece with perfect enamel, that is definitely something to look at. And it's something that I see if someone shows me a piece of enamel jewelry that is an absolutely mint condition. Yeah, now I'm talking about flowers specifically, but also it could relate to other enamel jewelry. That means you could be on to a winner. That is a good one. And that is one to have a serious think about. As we go into our gem trivial pursuit, I would be giving Ross a bouquet of lavender. Oh, that's... Which means what, Matthew? Uh, be smelly. No, <laughs> lavender means distrust. So I'd be giving a bouquet of lavender to our wonderful Ross as we go into this. For Matthew, I would be giving you maybe a whole, let's see, let's see, let's see, basil for good wishes. Uh, do you know what I'd give you, Elise? I'd give you a cactus because you're a bit prickly. <laughs> Ross, okay, we're getting going. Gem, Trivial Pursuit, Flower Language Edition. Elise, do you want to go first? No. Okay, I'll go first. So. No, I'm going first. Oh, Elise, okay, yeah. Go ahead, yeah, yeah. Okay, my, my questions for Matthew on flowers. Question one. I wandered lonely as a cloud that floats on high o'er vows and hills. When all at once I saw a crowd, a host of golden daffodils. Who wrote those words? William Wordsworth. Correct. Yes. Thank you, Mr. Fitzpatrick in sixth grade English. Yes. Question two. That was like very... Uh, that I was dumbfounded. Where's my le- flower language? I'm, I no, I'm bad. I'm bad on. I'm bad on popular culture. But I was I'm good on jewel- I'm good on poetry, actually. I was marigold, which is grief. Um, oh, question two. Everything is going to be in the Wizard of Oz. Dorothy, Toto, yeah. the Scarecrow, and the Tin Man. I don't know. And don't, the finish the question. I don't lion. know. Fall asleep while trying to take a shortcut through the meadow of what type of flowers? This is so easy. Say it again. Sorry. Just um, so question two. Yeah. Far away. Question two. In the Wizard of Oz, the whole group of the people in the Wizard of Oz who are on the yellow brick road fall asleep in what mm. flowers? Funny. I was thinking I was going to say buttercups. Um just trying to judge Ross's reaction now. Um, uh, is that your final answer? No, no, I was going to say because Yellow Brick Road, that's why I think in Buttercups. Um, they fall asleep in a field. Three, two. At least don't rush me. Um, one. I'll, no, I'll, I'm uh, just trying to think. So that would base, it's probably going to be like a like a flower 
Matthew, we you, I literally told you you have three seconds. Field of daisies. Incorrect. Ah, what is it? Don't say buttercups. Poppies. Poppies, I wouldn't know. Question yeah. three. Who released the song Flowers in the Window in 2001? Be flowers in the window so we look good. Flowers in, it was in a, uh, it was in like, this is music. Ten. Nine. Eight. Seven. Six. Ah, I know this five, song. It was on a four, CD that I got. In. Three. Flowers two, in the window. One. Something like, um. You're out. Wait. Seriously, Matthew, come on. Ollie Morris. <laughs> Travis. Travis! Damn it, I knew that. No, I didn't. Good effort. Well, I know Elise. One is, out of three. Listen, I know Elise is definitely going to get the last one for a variety of reasons, right? Um, but so it's just, it's really down to the first two. You've got the last one. Trust me, you've got the last one. Anyway, Elise, question one in the secret language of flowers. Gem Trivial Pursuit. What in a name? What? <laughs> 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 oh, yeah, let me, let question me, one. Let me finish. Let me finish. What's in a name? That which we call a rose by any other name. Romeo and Juliet. Shakespeare. Oh, crap. Yes, good answer. Well done. Question two. This is, Ross, honestly, this is Elise we're talking about. These are so easy. Which Dutch post-impressionist painter Van Gogh Sunflowers yes this is so easy (laughs) anyone who got that there's only one Dutch post-impressionist painter in fact that's it there is not one Dutch post-impressionist it's just that I I love impressionist art I travel the world looking at impressionist art Matthew and I've been to the Van Gogh Museum and I've seen the Sunflowers aren't you great aren't you great aren't you aren't you great well, this one, I mean... If well, you do- the sunflower does represent haughtiness, so what can I say? Yeah, well, you're a sunflower. Jeez, I have no answers for Elise this morning. Anyway, this one is... Brandon Flowers. Will I even say the rest of the question? The killers. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Sorry, and just for everyone who's listening, Brandon Flowers is the lead singer for which American band? The answer is the killers, which I knew Elise would get. Congratulations, Elise. That's a clean sweep. I actually don't know if we've had a clean sweep. It's been a while. We've put Elise... It actually puts Elise two ahead now, I believe. So Elise, with that 3-1, the two-point turnaround, puts her a point in the in the lead. Well done, Elise. Now, that was a, a very good one. You know, we'll have to question the... the if any... I'd love to know if our list Stop thought there was... Stop giving me fennel, which huh? means flattery. Okay, I haven't had breakfast yet, so when you say fennel, I just think of food. But look, they're only easy if you know the answers, uh, and Elise knew the answers there today. So well done, Elise. Um, we are going to wrap it up there for this episode of Gem Pursuit. Make sure, if you haven't already, uh, to sign up for our newsletter. You can do it through our website, courtville.ie. You can subscribe to it there. There's great content further detail from the different flower motifs and language we've been talking about so you can get additional information by signing up for the newsletter um as always i'd like to thank you all for listening i really hope you enjoyed it uh Elise, thank you very much for today and thank you to ross our producer and looking forward to next week and i hope to chat to you all then <laughs>